I invite you to open with me uh, to God's Word, uh, the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter uh, 12, Revelation chapter 12 and verses 1 through 6, Revelation chapter 12 and verses 1 through 6. We have been uh, studying consecutively through this book of the Bible. Um, I remind you that I believe that this book is structured uh, by seven different cycles. Uh, We concluded the third of those cycles last week, and we begin the fourth of them today with the beginning of chapter 12. And each one of these cycles uh, take us from the first coming unto the second coming of our Lord uh, Jesus Christ. Uh, Many themes are repeated, but things are looked at from slightly uh, different uh, angles. And in particular, uh, in this fourth cycle that runs from uh, chapter 12 down through chapter uh, 14, we are going to see, as it were, the cosmic dimensions of uh, what is, uh, of of the warfare that is waged in our uh, present world. We are getting a look, as it were, behind the scenes at what is, at what is happening. Uh, and with the beginning of chapter 12, we also are exactly halfway uh, through uh, the book of Revelation. And we do pray that the Lord might continue to bless uh, this study of the final book of the Bible. Let's now hear God's word, Revelation chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven, A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. This ends this reading in God's word. Let's ask God now for light to shine from his holy word. Let's pray. Lord, our God in heaven, we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for the truthfulness of your word, for all that it teaches us. Uh, We ask now that light would shine on your word and uh, cause our hearts to have understanding and grant that our lives would be changed by the things that we read. We love you, O Lord. Uh, We long to hear your voice. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Uh, Amen. Amen. The postmodern age in which we live uh, tells us that we all have our own individual stories. I have my story, you have uh, yours, everybody has their own story, but it says there is no larger story that encompasses all of it. 
Uh, and because there is no larger story, there is no objective morality, uh, there is no ultimate meaning, uh, you have no right to tell anyone else how they should live their lives, let them be authentic to their own story, you be authentic to yours. To use philosophical language, uh, the postmodern age says that there is no meta narrative. Uh, there is no cosmic story which makes sense of our world. Uh, but that is deeply dissatisfying uh, to many people, and understandably so. Uh, people rightly have a sense that there must be something bigger uh, than them. I find it so interesting that. Uh, in our world today, that the fantasy genre of literature is so popular, and things like Marvel movies uh, have such popularity. And I think one of the reasons for their popularity is that these are stories that are set on a cosmic scale. Uh, they involve supernatural beings with extraordinary power that are controlling the fate of worlds. And I think it's a kind of attempt to say that there is some kind of meta-narrative, that we are indeed part of something bigger than just us. Well, the Bible tells us that there indeed is a meta-narrative, that there is a cosmic story, and that there is one which is absolutely and utterly true. And that is what Revelation chapter 12 really is all about. Uh, this chapter is going to tell us a cosmic story. It's a very, very big story. It's going to contain very significant figures with supernatural powers. It's going to be a story told to us in symbols. Um, and in fact, the symbols are used in such a way that it seems uh, similar to kind of a fantasy story that you might uh, read, but these symbols represent real things in our world. And that's what we're going to study over these next couple of weeks uh, together. Today we're just looking at verses 1 uh, through 6. Uh, the passage that we're considering today in verses 1 through 6 is going to kind of introduce us to the main characters of this story and give us kind of a Cliff Notes version or a preview of. Uh, this broad storyline, uh, a story that next week, as we go through verses 7 through 17, we're going to see in much, in much closer uh, detail. Well, today, I just simply want us to walk through these first six verses uh, by considering the three main characters in this uh, cosmic story. The first of them is a woman, and the second is a dragon, and the third is a child. A woman, a dragon, and a child. Those were the three points of today's uh, sermon. So we consider what God has for us in these first six verses. First of all, I want us to consider a woman. Uh, John has just had a glorious vision. You'll remember at the end of chapter 11, a vision of a temple that was in heaven and the Ark of the Covenant that was seen in uh, flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and earthquake, heavy hail. What a vision must have uh, flooded uh, John's uh, eyes as he, as he saw these things. But then suddenly we move from that one extraordinary vision to another vision that is equally as extraordinary. And here we are told of a woman, 
But it's not an ordinary uh, woman at all. Rather, it's a woman that is uh, magnificent in every sense of this word. She is clothed, we are told, with the sun itself, shining with uh, that kind of splendor. Under her feet, trampling under her feet, are, is, is the moon. And on her head is not just an ordinary crown, but a crown of 12 stars. And this glorious woman is a woman who's also pregnant and is crying out in birth pangs in the agony of giving birth. Well, what are we to make sense? How are we to make sense of this, uh, of this symbol, of this sign that is given? Well, some interpreters have understood this woman to, to refer to Eve uh, and others, especially Roman Catholic interpreters, as the Virgin Mary. Uh, however, uh, that couldn't be uh, true. Verse 17 goes on to tell us that her offspring are those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And so, most commentators, and with this I completely agree, understand that this woman is really representative of the church. These are the faithful people of God, the covenant community of God's people. Both, as we read early in this chapter, in its Old Testament manifestation as Israel, which in labor pangs is going to bring forth the Messiah, but then as well in its New Testament manifestation as the church of Jesus Christ. As we're going to see a little bit later in verse 6, as after the ascension of this child, this woman is going to flee into uh, the wilderness where she is going to be uh, kept. This is a description, dear friends, of the people of God. And what a fitting description this is of, of the people of God. Uh, God's people are frequently described in Scripture as a woman that God has taken as his wife. Isaiah 54, 5, your maker is your husband. Or Jeremiah 3 in verse 20, where Israel is described as a, as a treacherous wife. Or in the New Testament, a place like Ephesians 5, or later in the book of Revelation, uh, chapters 19 and then chapter 21, where the church is described as the bride of Christ. Or we could speak of Galatians 4.26, that describes spiritual Jerusalem as our mother. So there is a sense in which the church is itself the bride of Christ, and it is married to the living God in which the church of Jesus Christ is the mother of uh, all of God's uh, uh, people. Uh, theologians, in fact, have frequently spoken of the church as the believer's mother. Cyprian uh, said that he cannot have God for his father who does not have the church as, as its mother. And Scottish covenanters, our Scottish Presbyterian forebearers, used to call the church Mother Kirk. Kirk was the, Scottish, it was, it was the word Scotland for church. So this woman, rightly understood here, represents the church. But here, Mother Kirk is described in all of her glory. Look at the description of this woman here. Uh, we're told that she's clothed with the sun. That represents her, her radiant beauty. And the moon is under her feet. That indicates her authority and dominion. So here's a, here's a woman dressed with the sun, standing on the moon. 
And she's wearing a, a crown of 12 stars. This indicates her royal status. What a crown it is that she's wearing. Uh, these 12 stars, it may indicate uh, both the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles of the New Covenant Church, but, but we don't know. But regardless, it's an absolutely radiant picture of the church of Jesus Christ. This is the church as God sees her. This is his beautiful, beloved bride. You see, the, so often the world sees the church as small and irrelevant and inconsequential. And similarly, even as a Christian, you may be tempted to become at times disillusioned with the church. You may think, well, the church is boring. Or it has people in it that I don't really like. Or you may be tempted to kind of segment the church and make it just occupy a little part of your life, but then get on with, uh, with the rest of it. Young people, you may be tempted as you grow older to drift away from the church and to think that you can get along just fine without it. You might think, well, it has a place in my parents' life, but I'm not sure that it needs a place in my life. And you don't want to come to church anymore or to be a part of church. Can I tell you this, that you and I, what we need is we need to see the church as heaven sees it. We need to see the church as God portrays it, that the church is beautiful. It is this woman, this, this significant woman here who is shining in radiant glory. Do you see the church as the glorious bride of our Lord Jesus Christ? Well, now picking up again the description of verse 2, what is the church now represented as doing in this passage? Well, we're told that this precious, radiant bride uh, is now pregnant and crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. Well, who is the church? And here represented as the church under the old covenant, Israel. Who is the church pregnant with? Well, verse 5 tells us very clearly it is pregnant with the Christ child. She gave birth, we're going to read later, to a male child, one who is to rule all nations with a, a rod of iron. And so what we have here in verse 2 is, is really a summary of the entire history of Israel under the Old Testament. With all of its struggles, and yet with the expectation that there was going to be a long-awaited Messiah that was born from, uh, from their midst. And so it is, as it were, Israel here giving birth to the Messiah. And that's a proper conception. When you think of the person of the Lord Jesus, on the one hand, we say that the Lord Jesus is completely and supremely God, God incarnate, the one who did not count it robbery to be equal with God, came down in the form of a servant. He became a man. Yes, uh, the Word became flesh, but flesh indeed the Word became. For, God, for, for the Lord Jesus is both God and fully man. And as fully man, Jesus had a real human lineage. In fact, you read in uh, some of those opening chapters of both Matthew and Luke, the real human ancestry of our Lord uh, Jesus Christ. And even Paul in Romans 9 and verse 5, speaking of Israel, can say that from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. 
So Jesus was truly born. He has a lineage traced through God's chosen people. He arose from their midst. And what verse 2 is describing again is the history of Israel in expectation of this coming Messiah. Through many labor pains, through many struggles and trials, nonetheless looking forward to that day when it shall see born in its midst the Messiah who was to be its deliverer. Here's the church of the old covenant, splendidly arrayed and glorious, ready to give birth to the Christ child. That's the first figure, a woman, a woman. Secondly, though, we have a dragon, a dragon. Well, as quickly as John had a vision of this glorious woman, he now just as suddenly receives a second vision. And this vision is one that is far more terrifying. We read verse 3, another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon. Well, who is this dragon? Well, this dragon is very easy to identify because the text does it for us. If you look ahead in verse 9, it says that the great dragon was thrown down. Who? That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. This is Satan, the devil. And what a fierce monster Satan is. Did you notice the description? He's described as as great, that is, a beast of tremendous proportions. Uh, This dragon is red, which is the color of blood or of destruction. Indeed, elsewhere we read that the devil is a murderer. Okay? He's a murderer from the beginning. Uh, this, uh, this dragon then has seven heads. Uh, the seven heads indicate authority and intelligence. But not just one head, but heads, as it were, that are operating in many different spheres of worldly influence. It seems that you conquer one head, but the devil has other heads in other places uh, still at work. But not only seven heads, he has ten horns as well. And these horns are representing power and might. You know, I wouldn't want to face a charging bull with a couple of horns sticking straight at me, would you? But even less do I want to face Satan, who has not just a couple of horns, but are described as ten, that number of of completion. And he is is, uh, fearsome. Oh, so fearsome in his activity. But not only does he have ten horns, we read then that on his heads are seven diadems. These diadems refer to rule and authority. This is not a a rule by right. It's not a rule uh, uh, um, that is rightly his, but rather it's a tyrannical rule that Satan has usurped in this world, as he brings peoples under his dominion who serve him as his subjects. So what a description this is. Now I remind you, it is just a symbolic description. This is not a literal description of Satan. This is a sign. But in saying that it's a sign, we don't say, oh, it's a mere sign. But signs always point to a reality that is even greater than the sign itself. And so here, 
is the attempt to frame words, some kind of a being, a dragon, a great red dragon with, uh, with heads and horns and diadems that is representing the fierceness and power and, uh, uh, of, and, 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 and evil of Satan uh, in all of its uh, strength. Think of Martin Luther's uh, famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, in the first stanza, For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and filled with and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. He does not have his equal on earth. Now, the devil's power is now seen in what he does. If you look with me at verse 4, we are told there that his tail then swept down a third of the stars of heaven. Can you imagine that big tail of the dragon swinging and a third of the stars of heaven come down? We can't be positive what this is referring to. I think it's likely that this is referring even to the original fall of Satan when he led a rebellion of angels. And here it's described as a third. So it's a significant amount, not a majority, but a significant amount of that mighty heavenly host that fell with him and that are now serving him as his demons. But what a picture this is of a great and ferocious being. You know, many people in our day and age don't believe in Satan. They don't think that he's real. They dress up in a red suit and give themselves a pitchfork on Halloween, and they make a joke of it. We name sports teams after uh, the devil. You know, it would be better to name a sports team after the Nazis than it would be to name them after the devil. Neither is appropriate at all. But the devil has done even far more damage in this world. But that shows you kind of what, what the world thinks of him, doesn't it? it he's a joke. He, he's a character uh, that, that we... Uh, that, 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 we, that we speak of. But in reality, dear friends, we need to realize that he is a personal and powerful spirit who has incited rebellion against God, who serves as the prince of the power of the air, who deceives men and women, who creates hatred and warfare, who is opposed to God and to his reign. He is the epitome of evil. And we ought to hate him as one who would seek to oppose the living God and to bring so many into murderous destruction and ruin. That's who this devil is. But what is this dragon doing? The end of verse 4. The dragon then stood before the woman who was about to give birth, we read, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. What's this speaking of? Well, it's speaking of the coming Messiah. And it speaks of the focus of Satan's activity, which is to destroy the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. You know, after Adam and Eve fell into sin, uh, we were given the very first gospel promise in Genesis 3 and verse 15. And do you know who that first gospel promise was spoken to? It was actually spoken to the serpent. As the living God told the serpent that he was going to put enmity between that serpent and the woman, and between her seed and him and his. Okay? 
and that the serpent shall crush his feet, but that the woman's seed, spoken of as a singular, shall crush his head. And even Satan at that moment understood what the living God was saying, that there was going to arise one from the woman's line who was going to be the destroyer of Satan. And so what we have in the history of the Old Testament is actually the attempts of Satan himself to kill this coming Messiah. Began with those two brothers born of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. Do you remember? Satan takes possession of of Cain, as it were, and incites him to murder his own brother Abel. And with that murder, thinking, well, he certainly put the godly line to an end. But then the Lord, of course, raises up Seth and continues the godly line through Seth. Uh, later, in the days of Noah, it is through uh, the intermarrying of the pagan people that he hopes that the godly line is going to be destroyed. And indeed, uh, the earth was absolutely filled with wickedness. But what did God do? God preserved Noah and his family, put them into an ark, and while he judged the world, he preserved that promised line. But we could go on, uh, whether it's the days of uh, the Tower of Babel, and then the calling of Abraham, this one godly person. But how many times was that line of Abraham under threat? At one point, uh, the Lord even tells Abraham to sacrifice that son of promise, Isaac, as a test of his faith. And Satan surely delighted as it seemed that this godly seed was going to be uh, stamped out and that the promised line would come to an end. But of course, the Lord preserves uh, Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. But then the people are taken to Egypt where they're uh, put into uh, slavery. And again, it seems that the people of God are going to be squashed under this uh, foreign power. The oppression was great, but what did God do? God miraculously brought them through the Red Sea and preserved uh, the promised line. Oh, dear friends, we could go on through the whole of Old Testament history and see that through these many sufferings of Israel that Satan was doing battle, and yet the Lord was preserving his people. Maybe it was in the days of of, of King Ahab, that wicked king of, of Israel, and his pagan wife Jezebel. And it seemed that there were none who would serve the Lord. And yet God preserved godly Elijah and 7,000 others who had not bowed the knee uh, to Baal. See, the Lord preserved his people. Or in the days of Esther, do you remember wicked king Haman? Haman was certainly an instrument at the hands of Satan to wipe out the, entire, the entirety of the Jewish people. The godly line destroyed. And yet the Lord raised up Esther. And through her valiant request of the king, the people were uh, spared. The people were spared indeed. And so what we have is Satan doing his violence in order to wipe out this coming Christ child. Well, what happens when the Messiah is about to be born? King Herod then becomes the instrument of Satan. What did Herod want to do? He wanted to wipe out every little baby boy that was born so as not to have a threat to his own kingdom and reign. And yet that little baby, uh, the Lord Jesus, was preserved. Uh, it took flight uh, to Egypt and was uh, preserved soon after uh, his, uh, his birth. Okay, And... Uh, 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 
we could just go on and we could go on and on, dear friends. After the Lord Jesus was preserved, and we go on to his earthly ministry. The Lord Jesus wanted to, or uh, excuse me, Satan wanted to stop Christ Jesus in his earthly ministry. He brings him into the temp, into the wilderness to tempt him for uh, forty days and forty nights, three different temptations in order to bring the Messiah down. If he bows to Satan, then his work is going to be done. And yet the Lord Jesus is preserved through that temptation and remains faithful uh, to the Lord. We could go on. Judas. You think of Judas. Satan thinks if I can turn Judas uh, to betray the Lord Jesus into the hands of others. And Satan fills Judas' heart. And Judas does betray the Lord uh, Jesus Christ and hands him over uh, to the Roman authorities. And then Judas, and then, uh, or over to the Jewish authorities who hand him to the Romans and and. Uh, uh, certainly Satan at this point is thinking, I'm finally going to win. And then on Calvary itself, Golgotha, as Jesus' hands are pierced and he is nailed to that Roman cross, and he soon is going to breathe his last. Certainly at that point, the dragon thinks, I have won victory over this Christ child. Do you see Satan's work? Satan's work in the midst of it all. And so this Satan, this dragon, is seeking to devour the Christ child and in devouring him to seek to stop the work of the living God in this world. But this moves us on now. We've seen a woman, we've seen a dragon. Now thirdly, I want us to consider a child. A child. We read of this in verse 5, that the woman then gives birth to a male child. One who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And so indeed the child, the promised Messiah, the deliverer of the people, comes into the world. And this is a description of nothing less than the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we are reminded that as he is, as birth is given to the Lord Jesus... That he is the one who is going to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. He is born a child and yet a king, we sing. Uh, this is actually a reflection of Psalm 2. Uh, psalm 2 is um, such an appropriate psalm to, uh, to quote at this point. Uh, because Psalm 2 is about the way that the nations rage. And the peoples plot in vain. And the kings of the earth, certainly under... Uh, being incited by Satan himself, set themselves. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. But what is the Lord's answer? It is in this coming Messiah. As for me, verse 6, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me. And I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall, and here it is, break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So this Lord Jesus was born so that he might be a king to rule and reign. That all who submit to him in saving faith would be saved. And all who continue in their rebellion against the living God might ultimately be judged. And what I want us to see is, in what this passage describes, is that what he came to do, he actually did. 
It says all that he rules the nations, he, or he came to rule the nations with a rod of iron. But this child was caught up to God and to his throne. What does that mean? Well, that's referring ultimately to the resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus. That though Satan sought to devour him, though Satan sought to prevent his coming into the world, though Satan used Herod and the wilderness temptations and Judas and ultimately the Jewish authorities and the Roman authorities to nail him to the cross of Calvary, though it seemed like Jesus' work was going to be stopped, nonetheless, it was through that very means of crucifixion that Jesus conquered. For with those words, it is finished. Jesus declared that what he had come to do was actually to suffer for the sins of his people. And that by his once for all offering on the cross, and our, our sins were laid upon him, he suffered for them in our place so that you and I, sinners though we be, can be forever freed from those sins, reconciled to God and be granted eternal life. That through Satan's greatest ploy, which was to put Jesus to death, the greatest victory was accomplished. Namely, the salvation of all of the elect from the beginning of time uh, till the last one is brought into glory. Oh, dear friends, do you see what he has done? And so that is why it speaks here of this child being born and then caught up to God in his throne. The idea is, is that he died a sacrificial death, but on the basis of that saving work, death could not hold him. But the third day, he rose triumphant over the grave as the living Savior, and from that position of resurrection power has now ascended into heaven where he rules and reigns from the right hand of God the Father Almighty. So no matter how great was the devil's rage against the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus has won. His people have been redeemed. And he rules and reigns from a position of ultimate power. Friends, this is going to be elaborated on in, uh, as we go further next week in verses 7 through 17. But now in verse 6, we have another statement about this woman. The woman that gave birth to Christ. The church of the living God. What happens to this woman now that, the, now that this man-child, this male child has been caught up to God and to his throne? Well, here we're told that this woman now flees into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Well, that phrase, 1,260 days, we've seen it before. We saw it uh, uh, a few weeks ago in chapter 11 and verse 3 when we were told that God's two witnesses would prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. And you'll remember how we interpreted that. We said that those two witnesses were the church. The church in its witness and testifying to the world. 1,260 days is half of seven years. It's the same as three and a half years or 42 months, which means a limited time of duration, a period between the two comings of Jesus Christ. And so whereas chapter 11 and verse 3 saw that period in terms of the church's witness to the world, now it's seeing that same period 
in terms of the church being kept free from Satan's uh, destructive power. The king, the Lord Jesus, in his ascension power, is causing, is protecting the church by causing her to flee into the wilderness, into a place prepared by God, where the church is protected by God, and in which she is to be nourished. And friends, that's where we are now. That's describing us. We are those who are in the wilderness, meaning that this world is ultimately not our home. We are here for a time. Our true home is in heaven. That's where we will forever be with the Lord. Right now we continue to face many foes. But while we face many foes here, what is the Lord doing? He's protecting us. He's keeping us. This is a place prepared by Him. He has us here. And He is nourishing us for this period of time. There is a stream, or there is a river whose streams make glad the city of our God. We we sing in uh, Psalm 46. And that's the idea here, that though we are in this wilderness, nonetheless the Lord provides and nourishes us. He provides for our daily needs. He gives us our food, water, shelter, family and friends. But more importantly, He gives us His his life-giving word. He gives us of fellow brothers and sisters in Christ with which to walk this pilgrim path. He gives us the encouragement of His Holy Spirit. He grows us in godliness. He nourishes us and keeps us while in this wilderness. So, dear friends, we are under the protection and provision of God. And we uh, uh, we are uh, with Him, kept uh, uh, from the, uh, from the wiles of the evil one. But what should we say then in application finally? So this is, the, this is the cosmic story. It's laid out, like I said, today you kind of get the Cliff Notes version. Uh, we go even deeper next week in verses 7 through 17. More details of the battle that has been fought. But how, what should we say in conclusion today? And I want to say just one big point And we're going to talk about this for a little bit. I'm going to kind of break it up a little bit. But the big point is simply this, is that you, dear friends, you need to see this world in terms of the character and the actions of this story. This is the cosmic story. This is the meta-narrative. This is the big picture. And you need to fit your little life into what the Lord is describing the big picture is. The big picture is a radiant woman, the church. A fierce dragon, Satan. A victorious child who is now king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what does that mean to fit our lives into this? On the one hand, it is that we see the church in all of its splendor and glory. The church as that beautiful bride of Christ The church now in the wilderness being protected and cared for by the ascended Christ. Do we love the church as the special prized possession of God? God loves his church and we need to as well. And we need to count it our highest privilege in the world to be attached to the church of Jesus Christ. Here is our family. These are our people. This is the kingdom that will never go away. We ought to love the church of Jesus Christ. 
you see the church as this radiant body? If you're part of the church, do you see yourself under the special protection and provision of the living, of the living God? A beautiful church. But then as well, as I said, we need to see our lives in terms of this ferocious devil who is at work. There is a real Satan. And we need to see Satan at work, continuing to be at work, even in the world in which we live. That when we look out at the world and we see, uh, we see the persecution of God's people. And we see places where wicked things are called good and good things are called evil. When we see people turning away from the truth who once said that they believed the things of Christ. When we see these things, we ought not just to think, oh, just the world's going on. We, we just Now we live in a post-Christian society. It's, it's just the normal way things go. No, dear friends, this is Satan at work. It's the evil one. Do you see his hand in what's going on? Do you see the ferociousness of his activity? There's a reason that we're told in our catechism that when we pray, thy kingdom come, that one of the things that we ought to pray is that Satan's kingdom would be destroyed. Do we pray that? Do we pray that? Do we realize that there is a fierce evil one? Do we recognize what he is doing? Do we see his hand at work in the world? Do we seek to oppose it? Not only do we see a beautiful church and a ferocious devil, but the third thing is, do you see a victorious child who is now king? Do you see a victorious Christ? Oh, dear friends, we do have a champion who has defeated the evil one. His name is Jesus. So even though all of Satan's efforts were focused on devouring this man-child, nonetheless, he was born And he conquered through his sacrificial death and victorious resurrection. And even now he is seated at the right hand of God in a position of all power and authority. Do you see him reigning and ruling in heaven? And Do you see your life in terms of that? Are you seeking to serve this one who is the king of kings? Are you trusting this one to provide for you in all of your needs? Are you clinging to the promise of this one's sure return? Are you daily living in, ho- in, in light of the, of the hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ? Look to Jesus. Earlier I quoted Martin Luther's hymn. We, taught, we spoke of the power of Satan. On earth is not his equal. But Then the next stanza begins. Did we in our own strength confide that striving would be losing? We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name. From age to age, the same. And he must win the battle. That's the cosmic story. Jesus wins. Do you trust in him? Are you following him? Are you remaining faithful to him in the midst of this world? Let's pray together. Lord, our God, we thank you that indeed the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who wins the battle. Though our foe be fierce, we thank you that you love your church and that you have given your victorious son. 
who will win in the end. Grant, O Lord, that we would see our lives, our stories, in light of this bigger story, and love and serve this Savior. We pray even now as we come to the table, Lord, that we would be reminded that this Christ Jesus has been crucified and is risen for our sake. And that we would trust in Jesus Christ, commune with him even at this table, and grow together in grace.